everyone. Welcome to Equals. This is Nadia. This is Max. Max, so we've both got kids, um, and just wondering, what are your kids' favorite Disney movies? Well, they've only just started getting into Disney, actually, and um, so it's corny because we live in Kenya, but definitely Stanley's favorite has got to be The Lion King. Ah, yes, my oldest um, just watched that for the first time and absolutely fell in love. How did she cope when his dad died? <laughs> it's funny you should ask. I was watching her face um, in that scene, and her face crumpled slowly but surely. Um, but by the end of it, she asked me to watch it again, so I'm pretty sure she's going to be okay. Well, as long as she pulls through. I mean, they just love Disney. It's, they're such great films. They really are. I mean, we we all grew up with them, and they're they, yeah, they're great. I mean, one thing that I have to say irks me. Um, and continues to irk me is how many of them are so focused on royalty and the royal families and how we're meant to feel this connection with them yeah princesses princes royal families i look forward to the the disney film about working class heroes that would be a good one that would be a good one and if our guest today abigail disney has anything to do with it maybe we'll see that one day yes now she's a millionaireess and she's the, the heir to the disney fortune she is. So her grandfather and his brother, Walt Disney, were the, the co-founders of, of Disney that we all know today. And she's a filmmaker, an activist. She's made award-winning films about gender-based violence. And most recently, she's made the headlines for speaking out on inequality. And she's one of the patriotic millionaires. What are the patriotic millionaires? Uh, patriotic millionaires, they're this fascinating group of very rich people in America who... They're speaking out on inequality, they're speaking out against tax cuts, they're speaking out in favour of better wages and less influence by the rich over politics, so they're, they're a great group. Great, well looking forward to hearing what she has to say. Yeah, it should be a good one. I'm delighted to speak with Abigail Disney today, who has been using her family global household name to challenge economic inequality and um, is a member of the Patriotic Millionaires, an amazing group that is challenging in the United States calling for a fair tax system. I also used to, I also once met Abigail when she released her film, Pray the Devil Back to Hell at a time when we were pushing for some rules at the Security Council on Women, Peace and Security, and that film was really groundbreaking and helped us get the legislation we wanted. So welcome, Abigail. Um, I grew up in a little town in Uganda called Mbarara, and it wasn't until I was 15 that I actually so a television and watched television. So I missed out on the Walt Disney movies that other kids saw, but now I watch them. They relax me. I love them. But tell me, what's it like to be part of the Disney family? Let's start there. Um, that's a question that is commonly asked. Um, when you grow up, in a family um, that is special, you really need a lot of years to know that it is special uh, because, you know, we're like fish. We can't describe water <laughs> until we've been out of it. So uh, I just had these wonderful grandparents and these wonderful parents, and, uh, and we have the same complications and challenges a lot of other families face. 
Um, but we did have this special thing, which was that once in a while we would get very dressed up and we would go to this lovely place in Anaheim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we would ride rides and people would treat us very special. Um, and uh, I got to watch my father make films. I got to watch my grandfather open the Walt Disney World. So I, I, um, I had moments of, for want of a better word, what Disney likes to overuse this word, magic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I felt blessed. Great. Abigail, you have said you are one of the 1%. You have said you've actually called yourself a traitor to your class. And you speak out strongly on economic inequality. What motivates you to do this? What is it in your personal story that makes you so outspoken about economic injustice? Um, I went off and left my family and went to college and, and changed a lot and learned a lot. And I found myself working um, with community-based um, organizations around New York City where my children were smaller and then globally when they got older. And um, because of my focus on community-based organizing, um, I was close to the pain because that's why community-based programming is so important and special, because it's right there, located where the pain is. I found myself developing friendships and relationships that were very strong and powerful with people who were really struggling. Mm. Um, And I don't feel I'm any different from those people other than the circumstances of my birth. So It's about being near where the pain is. Yes, and and honestly, um, what makes me passionate about it is the anger. Um, because it doesn't, it's not difficult to find these things out. They are really in front of our faces every day. And uh, it takes work not to know these things. And so I'm angry because I see so many people so comfortable when they should not be. Yeah, I read that story about you talking to the theme park workers, the cleaners, who told you that for them, they can't have a warm and happy face when they have to go home and forage food, yet they work. Mm-hmm. And in, yeah, I think it's about being close mm-hmm. to those who suffer. Yes, and you know, one of the things that is so interesting about the presumptions we make about how we pay people in this country and a lot of other countries is that if your work makes your back hurt, if the work makes you exhausted physically, it is somehow inferior work to the work that only makes your mind tired. And I'm sorry, I don't imagine a lot of these management people have ever worked until their back would not work anymore. And so I don't think we are elevating the right qualities with our how we reward people. Absolutely. Valuing work, valuing labor. My my mother was a a hardware store dealer. She she sold hardware. She had a Mm -hmm. little shop in our town. And... um, She'd spend her day counting bags of cement, measuring bags of nails, pushing chalk out of her store into trucks. It was hard work. And she taught us that, um, she, she, was, she was a Catholic woman, she'd say that anything that doesn't break the Ten Commandments is good work. Do it and be proud of it. And other women said, why doesn't she have a clothes store and sell clothes? Why is she doing this dirty, hard work? 
And she always shot back and said, as long as it brings food on the table, it doesn't break the Ten Commandments, it's good work. To honor work, to honor labor is so important. Yeah, exactly. So I find that, um, yes, you're, you're an important voice on rewarding work, rewarding labor, mm-hmm. and giving people a fair wage. The president of this country is fond of giving tax cuts to the super rich. You've also spoken out forcefully on tax justice. Tell me why you, as a member of the 1%, you're asking to be taxed more. Um, Well, uh, I'm old enough to remember when Ronald Reagan took office. And when Ronald Reagan took office, he started a process that has been like a snowball rolling downhill and gathering steam ever since. He he took our taxes way back. So we were paying sometimes in the 70% level of taxes. And there was economic stagnation at that time, and there were a lot of reasons for that. Um, well, partly, it was that we had taxes that were sort of punitive. Um, so he, But he took them back to, I think, something in the 20% level. I mean, it was a dramatic change. Um, And ever since then, if you wanted to win office in this country, you had to promise people that you would take our tax further down. And there has grown a very conscious movement of hostility to any kind of taxation in this country, Mm -hmm. almost like an indoctrination. And I um, remember that when the towers fell and I was crushed, you know, I was was crushed. I was here. I had friends. and and that that president used that as an opportunity really to go to war and then to expand the war to Iraq on false pretenses and then on top of it to give me a tax cut which I did not ask for no one was asking for that tax cut and who led us into then so much debt and crisis in the time that followed it Uh, I am so angry about these tax cuts because I understand that they have created real, actual suffering for people, real people in the world. Simultaneous with all those tax cuts, the Republicans would say, oh, we don't have enough money now. We have to cut the education system. We have to cut um, support for needy families. We have to do all these things. And so there's been an assault on poor people in this country simultaneous with this offering of greater luxury and greater leisure that nobody is asking for and certainly nobody needs. Mm. Um, And so when Trump came in and and proposed this particular tax cut, um, it was almost a comical um, explosion of that belief system. It was almost ridiculous what he was offering. And he was doing it the way he always does everything. He's like, the other people are a little serious and then they come along and then Donald Trump does it and it's almost funny because it's so extreme. Mm. Um, What he was offering to wealthy people with that tax cut, no one was asking for. Companies Mm -hmm. had never been more profitable. Rich people had never been richer. We Mm. didn't need this tax cut and what we really needed was to increase spending on infrastructure and Mm -hmm. all the things that middle income and, and lower income. It's not just low income people in this country now, it's middle income people who are suffering with terrible health care, terrible education. It just made me so angry. This and, and the wealthy people of my class, many of whom ridiculed Donald Trump privately in private mm-hmm. spaces, were welcoming of this tax cut and completely comfortable to just sit silently by and allow this to happen, knowing it would eviscerate the way we spend on the poor in this country. And I just, 
it just makes me furious. <laughs> I'm powered a lot it by fury. <laughs> it is, it is. I saw your, your video on this and it, it was really powerful, you know, stating very clearly the tax cut wasn't needed by the wealthy mm -hmm. and it takes away from the poor. So tell me about what you think about the big influence of money in the politics of your country. This is a global trend. This is a global trend? Yeah. Not many people know this, but in 1975, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, which is this professional gathering group for businesses across the country, relatively conservative, issued a memo, the Powell memo, that went out to businesses across the country. And it said, we have not been working hard enough to represent our interests in Washington. We need to spend more money as a group lobbying for business interests. <laughs> that was five years before Reagan was elected and taxes dramatically dropped. So, so that was a conscious decision on the part of businesses to go and make sure that Washington was doing what it was told. And after that, wealth inequality began very dramatically um, to increase in this country. And as that happened, people like the Koch brothers and Shelley Adelson and others, very these are American people's least favorite names in a lot of ways, mm. spent more and more and more. And it's benefited them not just in terms of the people we've elected, mm. um, but in terms of, for instance, the Supreme Court justices we now have mm -hmm. sitting on the court, and not just at the Supreme Court, but across the judicial system. So they were very smart. They came together and they had strategies for doing this that started with local politics, because you don't need very much money to swing local elections. Mm -hmm. And then... It, it, um, got up to the city and state level and then eventually the federal level. It was a multi-decade, multi-generational strategy. Mm -hmm. And so um, the fact that the Supreme Court recently said that a corporation is a person with the right to express itself as a person has a right to express itself was a colossal change. And, and we will be digging out from under that change for many, mm. many years because it offered legitimacy yeah. to... Um, businesses spending money to protect their interests in politics. Uh, Abigail, this is what I don't understand about mm -hmm. the American citizens, because you, you seem to cherish your democracy, you love your democracy, your rights as citizens, your constitution, but at the same time I see so much money of big business, you're talking of hundreds of millions, that pharma, that the arms industry, that that is put into lobbying your political process. How do people, do citizens understand this, that their voice is so diminished, so small compared to the voice of big interests? So what, what, what was important about that massive effort um, over the past 50 years at persuasion that occurred alongside all this spending in politics um, was a a sort of a seeding in, in most Americans of this idea that businesses do represent their interests. That it was accepted. Yeah, because there's this belief that business is the truly um, the thing that makes justice. Business is the thing that makes opportunity. And okay. so there is a loss of confidence in governments, because, partly because there has been a constant assault on them and, and their legitimacy, and an increase of trust in businessmen and in businesses in general. And you won't find that in a lot of other countries where people will look at General Motors, look at General Dynamics, look at General Electric, mm -hmm. and say, well, but, but they're fighting for me when they are fighting. Um, that You won't find that in many other places, mm -hmm. but that is an American problem. 
I would argue. It is. Mm -hmm. It really is, because it seems that corporations have taken over democracies. They have taken over democracies and the managements have taken over corporations. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that what that's not what people are understanding is right now the majority of people who own controlling shares in companies, mm -hmm. the majority of people certainly who are on boards of directors and in managements mm -hmm. are getting are becoming part of that one percent class mm -hmm. as a result of their work with corporations. And so they defend their interests. When Bob Iger gets his enormous salary of almost $100 million for Simulio's work. Mm -hmm. um, he has a board of directors that approves that for him. And they're all people who are either CEOs at other companies or want to be CEOs someday. They have no motivation to say to him he's being paid too much money. Mm -hmm. No CEO has anybody on their board um, that, that is motivated that way. So, but Abigail, can we have hope that this can change? Because if we are if wealthy people, billionaires like President Trump, like the Koch brothers, control the political process and give them keep changing the rules to suit themselves, drown out the people's voices, how can we turn that, that around? Should we have hope that we can yes. turn that around? We should absolutely have hope. And here's why. Um, David Koch just recently died. Um, his uh, the younger generation is taking over the reins of that foundation and all that giving, and they are very different from their parents. Very different from their parents. They have very different ideas. I think I don't know them, um, but this is what I'm hearing from people who are working with them. They uh, are conservative, but they're not take no prisoners conservative, and that is a very healthy difference. They're interested in looking at how do we heal some of the wounds that have been inflicted over these last few years, how do we enrich this discourse? So what has what happened over the last 50 years was a mindset took hold, which was that businesses do everything better because businesses are rational and they make rational decisions. And so everybody decided to accept this as like a biblical truth issued from Mount Sinai on a tablet. <laughs> and, and I've worked in business enough to know they are not rational. They do not make rational decisions. Um, and they never take into account the unexpected thing, which is that somebody with money might just come along and say, I know it's in my interest to have more money, but I don't want it. Mm -hmm. And I am meeting more and more and more people like the patriotic millionaires or very wealthy people who are saying, this is enough. And, and yes, there's a, there's a strategic and an important practical reason to be saying it's enough. Right, because people are angry, mm -hmm. and there are a lot of angry people, and in this country there aren't. <laughs> so <clears throat> that's an issue that's we all need thing. to think about. Mm -hmm. But um, on top of it, there is a moral reason. There is very much such a thing as enough, and um, I would argue the better word for it is plenty, um, because <laughs> that that is what I have. Um, I have more than plenty. I've, I've consciously not invested my money to go reach for a billion dollars. I could have done that, and I could probably be a billionaire now if I wanted to be. Um, I chose not to do that because I felt like, why? I can't think of a thing that I can't buy myself that, that I need or want, and uh, I, I can't imagine chasing money. As as a as a as you interesting can have way to three, spend my four, life. five super yachts. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. I don't have three, four, five super yachts. Sadly, I don't want a super yacht. I don't want an airplane. Those are the two big ticket items. And uh, 
and I am um, I I I think that there are some very unhappy people, maybe the most unhappy people, who spend their lives chasing more and looking always over their shoulder at the man down the street who has a bigger super yacht. And so um, I know that my life has been enriched by following other challenges. And um, there are very, very good personal moral reasons not to be in pursuit of more. And that is, I think, what a lot of wealthy people are starting to wake up and see, partly because their children are telling that to them. And you, so you're seeing it as generational. Yes, it is a generational shift. There are a few people of my age who are starting to wake up and say these things. But honestly, I just spent uh, last week with um, a group of the descendants of people who've taken the charitable, mm -hmm. um, the Gates Challenge. And uh, they were all very motivated to change the way uh, generations think mm -hmm. about wealth. They yeah. were all very different from their parents, and that we should all take as a sign that something really good is coming our way. You know, I agree future. with you, Abigail. It is generation when you see what this movement that Greta has built mm -hmm. on climate, literally telling us adults that stop it, greed is roasting our planet, it's going to destroy us. I see my son, uh, a 20-year-old, grown up here in America. He doesn't, he, he buys clothes from thrift stores. He does, he will never own a car, he doesn't see the point. He's, he's totally different from my generation. Mm -hmm. He uses less material things, he lives more simply, and, and his politics are much, so different from how we see the world. So yeah, I have hope in young people too. Yes, I do. This generation is very different and I think we'll, we'll, if we will stop talking long enough to listen and learn from them, I think we, we have a great hope of making the changes we need to make that Greta is talking about because she's not wrong. She's not wrong. Power to you, Abigail. Power to you. Keep doing what you're doing. so inspiring to hear someone of her um, of, with her platform talking about these important issues like taxing the rich and one of the things that I found really interesting was her talking about how uh, taxes of the rich have gone down over the years and I think many Americans don't know that back in the 50s and 60s um, the richest Americans were paying a top tax rate of 91% and that rate has just consistently gone down over the years. Yeah, that's true. I don't think many people really know just how much taxes on the rich have fallen. Um, and that's not just true in the US, it's also true in the UK, it's true in Europe. So often rich people today are paying half, sometimes lower rate than the tax than they were 20 or 30 years ago. And what was the thinking behind it back then? Well, as I understand it, the idea of having quite punitive high tax rates was to try and put a lid on really high pay for people at the top because if you're going for a pay rise of a million dollars and 98% of that has to go to the tax man then it's a massive disincentive it's it's a bit like a sin tax like a, instead of a tax on tobacco it's like a tax on high pay so a deliberate policy in some ways to keep income inequality low yes and one that was really successful successful until it was changed and then it was changed and tax rates went down for the rich and at the same time 
no surprise, CEO salaries shot up. Um, and one of the things that have really caught my attention when I was um, doing research for this interview um, was Abigail Disney's quote saying, Jesus Christ himself isn't worth 500 times his average worker's pay in reference to Disney CEO Bob Iger's package. I mean, what a powerful statement that is. Yeah, it's true. And it, it is when you take a step back and you realize that chief executives are being paid 500, 600 times the average wage of one of their employees. You just think, what an insane situation. And this just wasn't the case 20 or 30 years ago. And the economy in those days was, in, in any, in, by any measure, actually performing better than it does today. There's no economic logic for people being paid that much. And there's clearly a, a link between much lower taxes on the rich and much, much more money going to those at the top. Right, and I think it's you know a matter of how workers and work is valued in society today. I, I think she was really interesting about that. I mean, if you think about it, why is it that the people with the most difficult, toughest jobs, with the longest hours, often dangerous and dirty jobs, are paid so little when the, the people at the top, the kind of white collars, get paid so much more it does make you question about what we value and what we pay money for in society i thought that was an interesting perspective yeah i mean and it's frankly immoral and i thought that was also a, a good concept that she brought into this because it's useful to think of this on morality terms um, she was saying that there are no moral reasons for her to pursue more and more wealth and i thought that was also really powerful I think ultimately this is a question of morality and, and we've been living in very amoral times for too long where the only value we put on things is money and to hear someone as rich as her and other patriotic millionaires start to question the value of ever more money and to, to support things like greater taxation so that everyone can have a better life, I think that's great. I think it, it, that's, that's the way we're going to get change. Yep. Well, um, on that note, what are we going to be hearing about next week? Well, it's certainly going to be hearing from someone else who's also very much a moral activist, but at the other end of the spectrum. So a really powerful interview next. Looking forward to it, Max. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone. This is Nadia. And a reminder to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you on equals at oxfam.org. Brilliant. Thanks, everyone. Speak to you next time. Mm -hmm.